Good morning. Can I share with you a, a simple joy that I have? Just found this out. So I always forget to come in here and get a pew Bible and figure out what number the page number is for our chapter. It's, it's a nice thing to do. It's a nice thing to do. I looked at Chris to see that he also agreed that it was a nice thing to do. But what isn't a nice thing to do is to move your whole family over to where you're not where you typically see This whole section is lost on me now. I need you. Simple joy for me is when I open up my Bible and the page number at the top of where we're going to be today is the same that's in the Pew Bible. Never knew that before. Guess who doesn't have to run down here during the week anymore to find out what the page number is? This guy. It's just going to use my Bible. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today, which is on page 956. Hopefully you guys have uh, enjoyed our little break in the action since Easter. Uh, today we are back in the book of 1 Corinthians, and if you have forgotten where we have been up to this point, this chapter is going to seem a little weird to you. Um, because this chapter is actually, uh, it, it builds upon the previous two chapters and the points that were made in them. Um, so if you think back to... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we dealt with issues of marriage and divorce and singleness and all of that kind of coming to that epic conclusion of devotion to God above anything else. Do we recall that? Is your, is your, your memory jogging back to that, right? That, that call in chapter 7, I believe it's verse 35, uh, where Paul is writing these things so that our, our devotion to God may be, I mean, just single focus, right? And then a few weeks ago, Pastor Steve was in uh, Ephesians, or not Ephesians, maybe you referenced it, I don't know, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where we talked about uh, issues of liberty, issues of Christian freedom, and the fact that they're really, if we're looking to love our brothers and sisters in the faith, there really is no liberty or freedom that we have that we shouldn't look to uh, minimize or do away with altogether for the sake of another brother in their spiritual growth. And so in these two chapters, we kind of see exactly what Paul, uh, Paul, boy, the names today, right? Exactly what Dwight talked about when he came up and, and uh, read kind of that summary text. Really what we're talking about today is, is an illustration that shows how loving God with our everything and loving our brothers, loving our neighbors, loving those around us. This is all an 18 verses illustrating the previous two chapters. So uh, if you forget where we were, this could really look like Paul just kind of bragging about his pro bono work in Corinth. But I promise you, that is not what these 18 verses are about. So let's remember that context as we go to the text itself. Before we do, let's pray. God, we thank you for this space that you've given to us, body, to come and hear your word. And not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And that's, that's what we ask for today. And yet, we know that in of our own ability, we can walk out of here with a laundry list, a, a, a to-do list of what it looks like to uh, reflect you more fully to uh, both you and our worship and to the world around us. And yet, apart from the work of your spirit in us, apart from your grace being revealed in us, there's, there's really nothing that we can do. 
And so we ask that your spirit would come now in this place, that you would move through uh, the words presented, that you would move through our hearts and minds, and that you would show us the fullness of what your word means for us today. You've given us in these 18 verses uh, a picture, an illustration of what it looks like to be fully devoted to you and, and to love others well. Yet I pray that that story, that that illustration would awaken in us a desire for where we are, where we live, um, and that your spirit would have full work in our hearts. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's look at this illustration that comes straight from Paul's personal experience with the church in Corinth. Let's read the first six verses here. Paul writes, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? And do the other apostles... And the brothers of, uh, I'm sorry, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and, and Cephas. Or is it only Bar- uh, Barnabas? Boy, the names I'm telling you. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends the flock without getting some of the milk? So here Paul is setting up his illustration through a couple of no-brainer rhetorical questions, right? He's not, he's not actually expecting them to write back and answer every one of these questions. He's asking them questions that they know, all in an attempt to do two things. One, he wants to make clear his right to be called an apostle. He wants to make that very clear in setting up his illustration. You guys know that I have the right to be called an apostle, And the other thing that he wants to make perfectly clear for the sake of his illustration, he wants them to be really sure about what his rights are as an apostle. Because unless they understand that he has the right to be called an apostle, unless they understand the rights that go along with it, this illustration is going to be totally lost on them and us. And so Paul rests his case of apostleship on two points, if you notice here in the first two verses. One, the fact that he is actually seeing Jesus. Right, He's referencing back to his road, on, uh, road to Damascus experience where Christ revealed himself to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so that's what he's referencing here. And uh, we know that seeing Jesus is a clear, um, what would you call that? A clear requirement of being an apostle. If you look at uh, Acts 1, 21 through 22, uh, it really seems to show us that in order to be considered an apostle, in order to fall into that category of apostleship, you need to have had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And so Paul really had a unique experience, right? And seeing Jesus and uh, coming to him on the road of Damascus, he wasn't like uh, the other disciples who actually walked with Jesus. But still, all the same, Paul says, you know my story. You know who I am. You know that I am, that I meet the requirement to be an apostle. And the second thing that he wants, uh, or the, the second proof, rather, of his apostleship is the fruit that resulted from him pressing into that role as an apostle. He says, you, you know me. You know that I have the right to be called an apostle because I've seen Jesus. But also, look at my fruit. 
I've operated in this gift. I've done what God has called me to do. And look at you as a result. Look at this church, this body of believers as a result. Which is why Paul says, if to no others I am an apostle, at least I am to you. In other words, if the proof is in the pudding, Corinth, you're my pudding. Like, you prove the fact that, that I belong in this same category with the rest of the guys. Now, I'm not sure most of us would tend to think, I'm not sure any of us actually would sit here and think, well, Paul's apostleship, he's not an apostle. Paul couldn't possibly be an apostle. Like, would any of you call that into question, having read the book of Romans, having read Corinthians, having read like half of the New Testament, would anybody stand up and confidently say, I don't think Paul was an apostle. Anybody? No, we wouldn't, right? And so the fact that Paul is sitting here asking these rhetorical questions to kind of call to light the fact that he's an apostle, it doesn't even make sense to us. Like, yeah, these really are no-brainers to us, but the fact is that they weren't really no-brainers back then. They really weren't. Because there were a couple things that were working against Paul in the public eye to prove the fact that he was an apostle, to prove the fact that he had the same clout as the rest of the guys. And we see him kind of allude to this. If you look back with me to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now this simple approach that Paul took was not the popular approach. It wasn't. You had a very Greek-infused culture, and maybe in 2000, where are we, 2021, 2021, we're, we're there, right? We're not in 2020 anymore? <sighs> Thank goodness. Uh, but in 2021, right, at, at least kind of my generation below, we love, we love the, the authentic speakers, right? We love the guys that go up in blue jeans and they don't tuck in their shirts and they're just, just about being real, you know? Can we just get real for a moment? Like, guys, can we just, can we just be real here for a second and really talk about things? Like, that's, that's what we want. We want, like, just somebody to come sit next to us on the couch and explain Jesus to us. But back then, that was not the talk of the day. That was not what they were used to. They didn't want some guy coming in with the simple approach. They wanted to be wowed. They were used to the philosophers of the day coming through their towns, these men of great speech, great oratory skills, and they would come in and they would, they would wow the crowd. Not so much with their content, but they would have concepts that would blow their minds. Stuff that would be like, oh man, we came from what? And what means what? What about the universe? And oh my goodness, that's a crazy thought. I'm impressed. And look at the way that this guy talks. Look at the way that he dresses. Look at the speech that he uses. I mean, what a show. That's what they were used to in speakers of the day. And so Paul rolls in with this simple approach saying, I'm not playing this game. I'm not. I'm going to come in and I'm going to dumb it down and I'm going to make it so that the gospel goes forth in power because truthfully, he wasn't about creating fans, but followers of Jesus. And so Paul takes something, even to the, even at the cost of his reputation in the public eye, Paul takes an approach that is not popular for the sake of the gospel. 
for the sake of finding followers of Jesus and not followers of Paul. But that wasn't the only thing that was working against his apostleship. It was also his paycheck. You see, Corinth was used to professional speakers, men who were paid for their lofty speech and thinking. Greek culture did not value hard work the way that a Jewish culture did. They wanted to minimize the, the, uh, the, the physical sweat so that they could leave space for a mental sweat, so to speak. And so a speaker, one who comes and speaks in public and talks about these lofty ideas, but doesn't get paid for it, they were looked down upon. Why would you waste your time making tents where you could be sitting thinking about the deep stuff of life? Why waste your life on the physical when you could be spending your time and deep thinking in the spiritual things of life, the, the non-physical realities out there? And so here Paul comes in. Somebody who isn't down with wowing them with their speech. Somebody who isn't down with uh, getting payment for his speaking or for his ministering. And it would be very easy for anyone to look at him in that day and be like, you want to call this guy an apostle? You want to put this guy on par with Peter and all these other guys? Like, what, what makes him so great? Look at the way he talks. He's been here a year and he hasn't even earned a dime. How good could this guy be? And yet Paul says, guys, you know me. You know my story. You know what I'm all about. Again, you are my pudding. You know that I'm an apostle. You see, Paul understood that our devotion to God and our love for others may just impact our reputation in this world. It might mean that we need to minimize one for the sake of the other. We may need to put one aside for the sake of the other. And Paul is illustrating that he did that very thing with his life. And it's a price that he was willing to pay. And so he says, since you know that I'm an apostle, you must know what I am entitled to as an apostle. We already read it, but let's read it again in verses 4 through 6. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take a believing wife as do the other apostles in the Lord? Or is it just Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So again, Paul goes over his rights and says, As an apostle, my position entitles me to be provided for. My position entitles me to be provided for. And if I go off and I take a wife, if I exercise that right, that right that I said that I have back in chapter 7, if I want to go off and do that, guess what? My wife should be provided for too. Because there were other apostles in the day where that was their case. They went around, they were provided for by their churches, their wives, their families were provided for. And he says, hey, if I want to do that, that should be my right as well. And yet Paul reveals that specifically in the area of financial provision, neither he nor Barnabas have financially profited from their efforts in Corinth. And Paul points out the absurdity of this situation. He really wants to hit home the fact that, hey, I have my rights, and look at how crazy it is that I have not taken you up on my rights, that I have not exercised my rights. And he points this out in verses 7 through 12a. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? 
Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in the hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Here Paul gives common examples and biblical principles for paying an apostle or a minister of the gospel. You're all listening, right? This is very important. I I would include directors here too. For the record, minister of the gospel, broad term, broad term. Don't you muzzle that ox. Sorry, that's ridiculous. Uh, But he gives some common examples, right? He says, hey, a soldier, they're provided for by the state. You come and you, you fight for our freedom, we'll provide. We'll give you room and board. Might even give you some continuing education. That's fantastic. A farmer eats from his field. A shepherd is nourished from his flock. And then he cites Deuteronomy 25.4. And no, he is not comparing ministers of the gospel to oxen. So let's just get that clear. But what he does is he cites a passage of the law where if you go back and you read through chapter 24 all the way up to that point in 25, it's a section of the law that deals with fair treatment for people in a, in a variety of situations. It's all about how we treat others and what is fair, just, right treatment. So he brings out probably a, a verse that is, that is really going to call their minds back to that as if to say, guys, if, if the ox who works the harvest gets to reap from the harvest, shouldn't a worker in God's harvest also reap from God's harvest? So he says, guys, just, just look at the way that our world works. Look at the way that the Bible points out this reality. Tell me that this isn't my right. Of course this is my right. Now at this point you might be wondering, is Paul begging? Because it feels a little beggy, doesn't it? I mean, if we're being honest, like it kind of seems like he's taking a backdoor approach in his letter, like, like all of this whole, hey, I'm, I'm addressing your previous letter and the cares and concerns that you have, and I, and I really care about you and your spiritual growth, and, uh, but we're gonna just take a break on that for 18 verses because, uh, before I say anything else, we gotta, uh, we gotta settle up. Because, let's be honest, I was with you guys, I was working with you, and now I'm writing letters to you, and, uh, receipts always just receipts that's only what i have in my wallet that's it and so paul might just be thinking that you know i should be propped up a little higher on my side while i'm writing this but man i'm just i'm low on funds and so can we just take a break for a second and talk about the reality that you guys gotta pony up come on this is you see this in the world you see this in scripture why aren't you paying me beggar no, he's not a beggar. In fact, this is the opposite of what Paul is trying to do in this passage again, right? He's setting up the fact that he is an apostle, and as an apostle, he has rights that he is entitled to, that he could rightfully walk up and say, guys, you better recognize, because it's in our world, it's in the text, and you need to know what I am entitled to, right? Oh, why? We'll get to that. I'm glad that you're wondering. Let's take a look at verses 12 through 14. 12, we'll call it 12b. It doesn't say it in your text, but it splits it. I'm calling it 12b. So let's look at 12b. 
Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve uh, serve the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Here Paul points out that our devotion to God and our love for others may cost us our Christian rights. That they may just cost us our Christian rights, which is exactly what Paul says he gave up here in 12b. Even though getting paid for his ministry was his rightful claim as an apostle and a minister of the gospel, just as the Levitical priesthood was provided for by offerings made to the Lord in the Old Testament, and in the same way that Jesus instructs in Luke 10.7 to welcome provisions for the, to the disciples for those who they are ministering to. Right? He says, go into their homes. Let them cook for you. Let them provide a place for you to stay. This is something that is in the New Testament, something that is in the Old Testament. He's backing it again in Scripture, and yet he says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. And why? All so that he wouldn't put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Now, we're not sure why him getting paid in Corinth would be such a big obstacle. Again, this is something that the Bible supports. This is something that culture supports. This is something that Paul himself takes advantage of. Right? If you look at the end of Philippians chapter 4, Paul is thanking the church for providing for his needs, for sending an offering. And so Paul is receiving gifts from other churches. It's not like he's just the free apostle. Scripture supports the fact that Paul was provided for in his work of ministry. But for whatever reason, when Paul went to Corinth, he decided bivocational ministry is the way to go. I'm going to work a trade. This guy with all of his education, with all of his smarts, with all of his ability, you're telling me that the writer of Romans couldn't get up in the square where everyone's sitting and wax eloquently? Enough where it will wow people. I get it. If you're a Greek scholar and you read Paul's Greek, it's a little shoddy. Okay? It's no Hebrews. We can all agree on that. But still, Paul knew his stuff. Paul could swing doctrine with the best of them. And yet, for whatever reason, when he rolled into Corinth, he said, you know what? Not here. I know that they should pay me, but not here. And so they took up tent making. Also that there wouldn't be an obstacle. Now I don't know what kind of culture was created in Corinth where these philosophers and these men are rolling through town and they're giving these big lofty speeches that might be lacking content. Have you ever read like Greek philosophy? Have you? <laughs> Uh, some of it's a little light, you know, some of it's a little airy, some of it's like, wow, this sounds really stupid in a smart way. And so maybe he, maybe the culture around him is so used to these windbag, money-seeking speakers coming through their town that it's like, oh, here's another one. Here's another one. Bet I know what he's doing. He's rolling up in there with his fancy attire and his fancy words, and he's going to come in here and basically say nothing and then do one of these at the end. He's no different. 
Maybe the same stigma surrounding him was the same stigma that we feel with jumbo jet preachers of 2021. I mean, honestly, right? I mean, the second that you know the bankroll at those churches, the second that you see the car that they drive or the jet that they privately fly in, you're like, no way I am going to receive even truth from that cistern. Like, I am not, I'm not digging my cup in that, right? We have this stigma that surrounds the rich preachers of the day. And maybe that is exactly what Paul sensed when he rolled up into Corinth. Whoa, if I show up, the second that I ask for money, I'm lumped in with that guy. They're looking at me as the, as the Armani suit jumbo jet preacher of the day, and I don't want that. That's not what I'm here for. And if I roll in with my fancy speech and I give this eloquent sermon where everyone's like, good job, preacher, good job, preacher, what heart change is going to come from that? None. They're going to look at me and my greatness and my great performance and they're going to be distracted by the trappings and they're going to miss the truth. And so Paul says, you know what, I'm going to roll in with a different kind of gospel. It's going to be simple. It's going to look stupid. You people are going to look at me like I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce Barabbas on a Sunday. Barnabas? Is it Bartholomew? What is it? Yeah. Sorry, I didn't come to you today with an eloquent gospel, okay? No, I'm just kidding. But right? They're going to look at him and say, this guy's an idiot. Are you kidding me? Like the guy who was up here before and the, with the fancy speech and the, talking about how we, we came from air and it filled our souls and then we whisked away to earth and now nothing is real except, oh, this is, this is speaker, but it's just speakerness. It's not actual speaker. Oh, what is happening? What a deep thought. <sighs> this guy's like, I'm just going to preach Christ and him crucified. Because what you need to know is not how smart I am, but you need to know how real Jesus is and what he did for you. And so he came in and looked like an idiot. He came in and looked like he wasn't good enough to get paid for his work. He denied that right, and maybe it was just for the sake. I don't know if it was for these reasons or other reasons. The text doesn't say the gospel that, or the obstacle that was created. But either way, when Paul rolled up, he said, there's bigger things here than my rights. You owe me. But I don't care. I deserve this. But not at that cost. And so he chose to work a job, to make tents, to do bivocational ministry, to minister on the side, to save souls, to proclaim the gospel, to do all of this work. How many of you guys teach an ABF that aren't here working at the church? How many of you guys maybe are a small group leader or, uh, or you, man, you, you lead men's ministry or you do all of these things on the side? Is that easy, Rob? Is, is it easy working your job and doing this on the side? No way. No. In fact, I remember when I went to sell insurance for however many hours a week I went and sold insurance and then we went to a different church. Yeah, insurance. Yeah. Limited liability, baby. Buy that umbrella. Buy it. Right? <laughs> it's like 10 people in here. Like, oh, yeah, umbrella. That's smart. 
<laughs> goes over your limits. Yeah. Um, but I remember in those two and a half years what it felt like. Like, man, coming out of Moody and like going to, I just didn't understand why people didn't want to sign up to be leaders. I didn't understand why people didn't want to volunteer for this thing that was happening on Saturday. I was like, what's wrong with these people? Why don't they love Jesus? And then I went and worked a, a job out there outside of the four walls. And I was like, I never want to do anything again ever. <laughs> ever. Oh, you want me to be a leader in the youth group? How much does it pay? I'm not doing this. Paul, who has all the credentials of apostle, of an apostle, who has all the rights coming to him as an apostle, steps up and says, "You know what? Forget it. I'll, I'll just, I'll just work a, I'll just work a job out here. I'll just work with leather, make tents. You don't have to pay me." What? Imagine going into work on Monday. Hey, you know, what, guys, it's good. I got it from here. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll just figure out my, my expenses in my life on the side. I'll just come here for free. Yeah, 40, 50, 60, I'll just come here for free. No big deal. No? None of you? Any volunteers? Not going to happen. And yet that's exactly what Paul does here. Paul shows us that our devotion to God and our love for others may require self-sacrifice for the sake of another. But love for others wasn't the only reason why Paul was refusing pay. 15 through 18. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. For if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Here again, Paul makes clear the fact that he isn't hinting for a desire for support, but he's actually doing the opposite. He says, I'd rather you kill me than pay me and take away my grounds for boasting. Now, boasting is one of those things that uh, whenever Paul says it, and he, he whips it out there every once in a while, it makes me cringe. Although, does it make you cringy when you hear Paul talking about boasting? How many of you like, you, you like to talk about the things that you boast in? No, like it's one of those words that when we hear it, we're like, I don't want to boast. I don't want to be a bragger. I don't want to, like when we think of boasting, we think of, you know, the idiot in baseball who like, oh, flips the bat, does one of these down to first base, like just hit a home run. Come on, let's go. Like you look at that guy, and you're like, act like you've been there before. Like, what's your deal? Or you think of the, the wide receiver, because it's always a wide receiver in football, comes out and is like, yeah, man, I just want to say I'm the best at this, and you know, Jerry Rice, he was just a chump, and I just, uh, and, and they just go on and on and on and on and on about their own greatness and how they're the best, and you're just like, could somebody hit the mute button? 
Or more real life examples, it's the, it's the mom or the dad who pulls up next to you at the park or, or at the co-op or whatever, and they just want to tell you about everything from, from like first poopy in the potty to first A plus that their kid does and all these great things. They're just, they're on the honor roll. They actually made an honor roll honor roll for them and uh, they've invented a class around their smarts and uh, I think they're just going to like, they're going to invent a new Adam and that's, it's just so great. They're just so smart. And you're just, these are people you want to punch in the face, right? Can we be honest for a moment? We're not fully sanctified. You want to hit these people. I do. And if, and, and if I'm the only one, you come up and preach. Rob, you ever want to punch these people? You come up and preach. That's what we think of when we think of boasting. We think of these people who are just so full of themselves. I'm just so great. And yet that is not the context. That is not the way in which Paul means this word. It's not even really the, the uh, English equivalent of what Paul is trying to say. It is a boasting, but what it is, is a, it's a joy. It's a rejoicing. This is his grounds for rejoicing. This is the cause of his joy. So when you see him use that word, it's not like, hey man, I'm just refusing pay so I can come back and be like, boom, super apostle. Come on, come on. Oh, did you accept pay? I didn't. Oh. No, he's not doing that. He's saying, this is my grounds to rejoice. This is why I rejoice. Verse 16 and 17, Paul makes clear that it's his job to preach the gospel in Corinth. This is a gift that has been entrusted to him. When Paul, when Paul was called by Jesus, he was called to go do something. And so for him, coming and preaching the gospel is just him showing up to work on Monday. And you don't get rewarded for showing up to work on Monday. When I show up to work on Monday, it would be so great if Charlotte met me at the door with donuts and coffee and just, come on everybody, Matt showed up today. It's Monday! Come on, man, You did it! She doesn't do that. But if you want to tomorrow, <laughs> you can do it. I love you. I'm not going to stop you. I love me some donuts and coffee. But she doesn't. Why? Because that's my job. Like that's, yeah, it's ministry, but, but it's my job. You guys employ me. I get salary and bennies for being here. And so for me showing up on Monday, it's not like God is up in heaven like, yeah, Matt, way to go. No, this is, this is a gift that I've been called to steward. This was a gift that Paul was called to steward. Chris, not so much a gift, but you're here and we commend you for that. I think I owed you one for something. Um... But the point is, Paul didn't rejoice in simply doing the job as assigned. There wasn't any rejoicing, there wasn't any joy to be had in just showing up and using the gift that he was given. That's stewardship. It's either you use it or you lose it. He was doing what God had assigned him to do, and yet where was his joy found? Where was his joy found? His joy was found in doing what he didn't have to do. Knowing full well what it would lead to. His joy was found in denying his earthly rights to pursue kingdom values. Refusing his right to his due wage. Risking his reputation in the eyes of man. All to give his everything to what God had called him to do. And to let nothing stand in the way of lost men finding their savior. 
That's what Paul is doing. I rejoice in the fact that I don't stand in the way of a single man, that no man can point at me and say, yeah, well, look at you. You just do this because you're paid to do it. Yeah, well, look at you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be here if we didn't pay you to do that. Oh, look at you and your, and your haughty speech and you coming out like you're, like you're the bee's knees that we've ever seen. In Cur- no, you know what? Not buying it. He says, you know what? I reduce myself to nothing. Why? For the sake of the gospel. So that nothing could stand in the way of the full effect of the gospel taking fruit in Corinth. Our devotion to God and our love for others should affect what we value most. And that's what Paul models here. That's what he models for us in this illustration. These 18 verses are a real-life illustration of what Paul shows us in the previous two chapters. Points that are derived from exactly what my brother Dwight brought before us today. What we see in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, which is, And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Basically summarizing the whole of what God has asked for his children. That we would be fully devoted to him and the things of him and that nothing would stand in the way of our desire to love people towards him, to reflect him towards others and all that we say and do. And that's what Paul is illustrating here. He's illustrating the main point of everything that he's talked about up to this point, saying the total devotion to God and true love for others. It's not easy and I know it because I've lived it. Right? He's kind of breaking the number one rule in preaching, which is like, don't make yourself to be the hero. <laughs> but Paul can do that. He's saying, guys, I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done. Look at my life. Yes, I'm asking you to look at your life and not be so worried about your station, your relationship status, all of these things that it steals away from your devotion to God. Yes, I am asking you to lay down your rights for the sake of a brother. And you're going to stand up and say, well, I'm an American. No, I'm a Corinthian. I'm entitled to. Guys, I know I'm asking you to do something that's hard. So let me show you what it looks like. Because I'm practicing what I'm preaching. It might cost us our reputation. It might cost us our rights. It might mean we need to realign priorities. But this is the life we've been called to live. And Paul shows us this type of life is one that is worth rejoicing in. One that joy is to be found in. Because it's a life that makes a difference both in this life and in the next. And that's why I had Dwight read what he did to open our service today because I feel like, once again, it summarizes what he's saying here. It basically breaks down the chapter, breaks down this section in Corinthians, breaks down all of our questions, all of our barriers towards loving God, towards loving other people. It breaks down all of our selfishness. It breaks down all of it and says, guys, 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 I know, I know, I know. But this, but this. Chapter 10, verse 31 through 11. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
from the most basic to the most refined. When whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That line slays me when I read it. Because I can't say that to you. I can't. I never would. Because I think about me on a given day where I am asked to uh, be more devoted to God than I am uh, my free time. Or when I need to be more devoted to uh, the person who might be coming over to my house or uh, who I might see out in a restaurant and be more devoted to that than what I want to have as a drink with my dinner. Uh, or as I think about uh, just all of these different situations in my life that rub up against me and what I want or what I think I'm entitled to. I mean, shoot. The mandate's over. Ask me to wear a mask into your business and say it's still required. And just watch what happens in my world that you can't see. And sometimes, unfortunately, in my world that you can see. And I could not confidently say to any one of you, follow me as I follow Christ. Do as I do. Come, walk, walk right up behind me and I'm going to show you the way to Jesus and the way that I live. I wish I could. And again, if there's any one of you out there who feel like you can, the pulpit's all yours. And I mean that with sincerity. Because I think we all want to be led. But few of us really want to lead. Because leadership... To live in this way, to live in the way that we are called, it's hard. It's costly. It means sacrifice. It means dying to self. To live the life that we have been called to as believers, it's it's not all roses and butterflies. If we take it seriously. If we truly live our lives before the throne of grace. And not just look upon it as a means to be saved. Not just look at it as free grace, which means free reign for the rest of my life. But actually look at grace as freeing us to something. Freeing us to a life that we could not live before. Because that's what His grace does, right? As we look at uh, Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's what grace does. It brings us into the family of God. It frees us from the death of our sin and brings us into new life with God. Awesome, but what else does it do? We've talked about this before. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts so that we can live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. Like This is, this is what His grace does. It frees us, but it instructs us. It frees us, but it propels us into something that we would not go into on our own. And when we look upon Jesus, we find our Savior. But when we look upon Jesus, we find more than that. And yet so often, we read verses like, follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm like, well, that's just Paul. Well, that's just Jesus. That's just the disciples. 
That's just people in the Bible, of course. No, guys, this is, this is what we're called to. He's saying, hey, you, follow me. As I'm modeling this in the way that I live, as I am going hard in the paint after God, as I am going hard in the paint after people with my priorities set on winning souls for the kingdom, regardless of what it costs me, follow me. Walk after that too. Don't just look at me and say, yeah, you go get it, Paul. It's all you, guy. No. No, that's, that's all us. That's what we've been called to in grace. And it's not a works-based faith. It's a faith that looks back on the work of God and says, thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for freeing me. And thank you for making this life possible through the power of your Holy Spirit that lives in me. And faith is saying, you know what? I look at my life and I don't see it today, but I'm going to step forward in faith knowing that I might see it tomorrow. And if I don't, I'll see it in glory because he's covered me with his blood. Praise God. That's what grace frees us to. And I hope one day, <laughs> I hope one day I can look out on the sea of people that I love and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Amen. And yet in the meantime, I look at his grace. I look at his blood that was shed for me. And I find the freedom to say to all of your faces that I know and love and those of you who I don't know and have yet to know what loving you looks like, we can run after this together. We can run after this life that we've been called to live together. But it might cost. It might take sacrifice. It might take some death to self because in the illustration that we see in these first 18 verses, that's exactly what it was to Paul. And I think we sell ourselves short if we think that the Christian life may mean something different for us. I don't think Jesus modeled that. I don't think the disciples modeled that. I know Paul didn't model it, and he shows us that here. I don't think martyrs through the time uh, since this time has showed us that. And so if we want some kind of fat, sleek, comfy Christianity then we may need to pick up our Bibles and read what's really in there. Because we're called to a fight. We're called to a battle. We're called to fight forward and gain ground for the kingdom. And that doesn't come without a cost. And so let's look at his grace. Yes, his saving grace. But let's look at his grace that propels us forward into new territory for his kingdom. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much. I thank you for your grace that saves me, that restores me, that brings me into right relationship with you. And I thank you for your grace that shows me a different way of living than one that is selfish, that is self-focused, that is inward, that is only after what can be gained in this life. But I thank you that you free me to a life that matters in the here and now. A life that matters for eternity. A life where the God of heaven comes and indwells my being so that I can be used for honorable use for your kingdom. I don't deserve that. None of us do. We don't deserve to be indwelled by the spirit of the living God and yet that is what you chose to do. To make your power known to a world and to save many men for all of eternity. And so, God, I pray that we would run hard after you. 
and that we would honestly look at our lives and find the things that we have settled for that need to be uprooted. That we would find the things that we have allowed to infiltrate our lives that need to be destroyed for the sake of being fully devoted to you and for the sake of loving those who you have placed around us. We pray this together in Christ's name who made this all possible through his work and his resurrection. Amen.